Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us today like every Friday with the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Malcolm, and everyone. Uh, good morning. You know, I, I, those who survived yesterday. Yeah, those in the New York, New Jersey area certainly survived yesterday. Um, one of the things, I know that you rightfully go out of your way to compliment them when possible. I, I being the size I am, take every opportunity to knock them, so I will make sure to be nice this morning. Uh, a reminder, as two El Al planes that took off late Friday from JFK landed in Rome and Athens instead of Tel Aviv in order to prevent religious and Haredi travelers from arriving late to Israel and thus being Machal Shabbos. And I think it's just a good opportunity to again remind everybody, like we did last week with Israeli radio and the newscast, candlelighting, etc., it's good to remind everybody, no matter what you think and no matter what you, no matter how difficult sometimes it might be, especially at a certain size to fly, nonetheless, it is pretty amazing that our very own state of Israel has its very own airline and one that's ready to accommodate Shabbos and many other religious situations. So I thought we'd give them a big shout out to start out this week. Right. <laughs> I know. I know that you echo my sentiments. And, uh, yeah, and, and understand. Have to anticipate because uh, you know, in the 21st century, we still have certain things like nature that you can't overcome. Isn't it unbelievable? Uh, just incredible. You know, I'll tell we you. think we can control everything, and and uh, it ain't true. Yeah, that's for sure. And we're seeing that in many areas of this country. For those around the world tuned in, uh, we are focused constantly by our news media on the fires in California and obviously difficult weather situations that go on, especially uh, with tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, etc. And this thing in the Northeast yesterday was really threw everybody for a loop, and I hope everyone is, in fact, um, safe and sound on this uh, era of Shabbos. All right, speaking of safe and sound, we're obviously very concerned about the situation in Israel. Uh, we'll go back a bit before we do the whole political side of it. Uh, would it be accurate to say that between Monday and Tuesday, about four to 500 rockets fired from Gaza into the southern part of Israel? Yes, 500 is uh, closer to the truth than 400, it, in cumulatively. But remember, it was in a, in a relatively short period of time, yeah, boy. about 24 hours. Uh, and the capacity to do that is, uh, is very frightening. As you know, Iron Dome took out about 100 of them, the air defense system, and it also can computes when a rocket is fired, whether it will land likely in uninhabited areas. So those are not even fired at. And, and people have to remember, it's very expensive. Each shot of an Iron Dome is, I don't know, fifty, seventy, dollars $70,000. And so it's something that they have to do wisely, and they can't and because the number of batteries are limited, they have to tr- make sure to be able to take out those that pose the greatest danger. And when so many are coming, uh, it's it's not easy to um, to fire constantly. Oh, but but so people told me, my grandsons who saw it from the Shiva saw the, it, they said it was an incredible sight to see how many were in the air at the same time and being taken out. So this is the test. That now I understand better what they mean by a test of the enemy of Iron Dome because they they know how effective Iron Dome is. The question is they want to know how effective it is when there's a real bombardment, a real assault. And when you have uh, you know that many coming in for Israel, and, and maybe I'm anticipating some of the questions that you you'll ask, but um, we have to look at the totality of the picture. You have large civilian populations; they came under assault. Uh, you, you saw the rockets. Uh, heading to to Ashdod, you saw um, the attempts, to, I think, to reach Ashkelon. The um, uh, certainly 
there have been a few that have hit as far as Besheva, but the um, uh, when you have this many rockets, maybe 20,000 rockets and mortars in the hands of Hamas, this is more than double what they had at the time of the war in 2014, right? 2014, yeah. right. And so... You, you have so many decisions that they have to make. Do you evacuate people? Where do you put them? How do you safely transport? How do you keep life as normal as possible so you don't, um, uh, you know, to destroy the, the infrastructure of life in the South, which would be terrible. And the people's resilience there, their dedication, that families who stay, it, it, it's, it's more than miraculous it's, and heroic. It's incredible. People should think about them. We should be supporting them. Uh, but the uh, um, the conditions there with children knowing that they have 15 seconds to get to a, and, and always being on alert to get to a, a sanction, a, a, a safe uh, place to one of the safe rooms or to, to one of the bunkers and safe rooms uh, uh, that can be a distance away. And they have to constantly worry not only to be alert for themselves, but to worry about their families or if they have children, whatever. Um so the, the the nature of the challenge to Israel is really very scary. And, you know, the leaders of Hamas weren't, weren't seen during this time. They were underground the whole time. They used uh, timers and remote control devices, even not the leadership, you know, the, the guys who fired these uh, rockets, because they didn't want to expose themselves to danger. They don't mind putting the civilian in Gaza under, in danger. And they use civilians as cover and hide under them in this case, not just behind them. Uh, and they were they were in the, these um, the underground infrastructure that we know exists there. And you mentioned the leadership of the enemy. Um, an article that I found in your Daily Alert alludes to the fact that now, and I, I never realized this, all the different terror groups are coming together, establishing a coalition, so to speak. And now, honestly, I thought all the terror groups that are that are you know that have a presence in Gaza, frankly, were together already. Do they have the potential to be even stronger and more unified? Not ultimately. There may be as a tactical move right now, but ultimately their differences, they have different backers, uh, different degree of backing, mostly Iran, but also others. And uh, their interests at some point diverge. But right now they have a common interest. Right. And, and part of the concern, I think, uh, and I hear from people all the time, but why don't they just carpet bomb? Why don't they just respond? Um, uh, is that the message that they get? If, if you don't really eradicate the danger, but it's not simple in a place. You have to know the, the demographics. You have to know the topography and the, the, the situation and what it would mean to send in soldiers to to clean it out. If you're talking about a ground invasion, if you're talking about just airstrikes, Israel carried out, I think, a hundred and twenty airstrikes in one day, in one night. And the next morning, uh, and in the whole day, I think 150 strikes. There wasn't any civilian casualties reported, and it's again a point I make, and people should be making, is that here you have an, uh, an air force, probably alone in the world, they could hit 150 targets, and yet so precise that it's one building in a row of buildings right. that they they give advance notice, which many have questions, including myself, about when you hit the the um, 
strategic headquarters of their of their security services, you know, giving them notice, making sure that they're, they're all out. I know they don't want a high casualty numbers, we know, because of the international reaction, et cetera. But to me, the question is, what's the psychological impact? What is? How do they? Do the people interpret it? Do do others say, "Look, Israel, so concerned about human life in its borders, even the human life amongst its enemies, that we have a lot more leeway to, to press them and to stretch the, you know, the, what we might do, uh, because Israel will always act with restraint." And the, you know, that is that is one of the issues that's being debated is. How do others then see it? Do they see it as strength that Israel says, look, you know, these are not an existential danger. These are not, um, the rockets are, are harmful, but they don't represent uh, an ultimate threat. They hurt the economy. They hurt people. They, you know, it can damage homes, uh, as opposed to the situation in the north where you have 150,000 missiles and Hezbollah, which is many times larger than uh, Hamas, uh, and the danger of a two-sided war right. is uh, is a very serious concern that they have. When the prime minister, and, and again, on the issue of carpet bombing versus, let's say, we'll, we'll call it versus ceasefire, when the prime minister rushes away from France to get back to Israel in light of the situation, in light of the uh, the killing of the officer Sunday night, and the operation, and of course the escalation that ends up happening on Monday and Tuesday, it, it, isn't that a signal or, or is it just wishful thinking of, uh, among some? That there is going to be, I wouldn't say carpet bombing, but certainly some type of serious advancement, some type of serious infiltration of the enemy by air and by land, uh, or, I guess as we've seen, uh, can a can can an emergency move like you know rushing back to Israel land in a ceasefire? I guess my question is, you know, once once we heard that he was running back to Israel, we just assumed that there was going to be a major military offensive. That is true, uh, but you have to look at it from various sides. Number one, if he had stayed in France uh, while uh, 500 rockets were fired, you know that there would have been an immediate crisis. There would have been so much criticism. uh, it, It is entirely appropriate that the prime minister, I think any head of state, would have returned. Um, because, first of all, they didn't know how long it would escalate. They didn't know how that this that the ceasefire would even be possible. And I would say that 150 strikes is pretty strong. You know, there aren't that many military and, and strategic sites to hit in Gaza. And they've hit hundreds over the last six months, let's say, in, in uh, various responses to, to firing of rockets and terror attacks. Then why do so many people in the South think Israel didn't do a good job this week? Because their lives are still in danger, because they, they, there's been no diminution in the threat that Hamas can renew this, that this gives Hamas a breathing space and time to, to regroup. And and, um, and they're saying, well, what we, we are here, you know, we're the targets. We have both sides painted on our communities. What improvement is there from this in terms of, uh, of our situation and the threat to us? And the answer is that they look around, they say, well, we didn't disarm them. We didn't kill many of their leaders, although some were. You know, the um, uh, it's fully understandable. They live very difficult lives. They had big demonstrations in Tel Aviv uh, about uh, about security, and then you had a statement by a, uh, one of the members of the government, uh, not very thoughtful, and has since retreated from it and tried to apologize. I think 
or right. will today, um, that, uh, you know, it wasn't serious if they had Tel Aviv. That would have been, that would have evoked a, a different response. Right. Well, what he meant was, obviously, well, it wasn't a put-down. It, it was a put-down, but it wasn't, I think, intended right. in his case to be. But obviously, if you're a resident of the, of the South, Mm-hmm. And you see somebody close to the prime minister, a significant individual, making a comment like that. Yeah, it, it's sort of like the article we saw that uh, you know, if somebody hit, you know, would, would fire one rocket at the U.S., what would the response be? Nobody's, you know, no, <laughs> nobody's uh, drawing that as a direct comparison. Certainly, we have plenty of sympathy for the, our brothers and sisters in the South, but we do know. In reality, there'd be a different type of reaction if the U.S. was hit or if Tel Aviv was hit. Well, when, but even when Beersheba got hit, you right. remember the the response right. was was more immediate. Right. And you know, compounding it for the people there is that they saw the read the reports like we did of the transfer of money, right, from Qatar, and they're saying, you know, you gave them fifteen million in cash, and this the, is you this know, is you a, a reward for what? And this is this happens. You know, days later. Well, first of all, there are a couple responses. One is that, and I heard from a top military, foreign military uh, leader, that they botched the um, the raid that they were engaged in. The uh, they were the attempt was to surveil and perhaps sabotage some military equipment. I don't think it was an assassination squad. Uh, but unfortunately, it got detected, and that led to the shooting and the killing of uh, one of the soldiers and the wounding of another, uh, as they did heroic things to protect the other soldiers who were with them. Uh, this is not something that, that is so rare. They go in periodically to to get intelligence, to see the new equipment, to maybe address some of the threats at tunnels, etc. So you, they have to do it, and they do it with great precision and very rarely detected. Unfortunately, this time it was, and that led to the to the escalation. So they they're saying that this was not intended. This was um, necessary to the the rockets. Then became a response to that, and then the people look and they see that this money goes. It was meant to do give a hundred dollars to fifty thousand families. This is money from gutter, and a hundred dollars would mean it's significant, right? For a family there, it's significant. Well, it's the first money they've gotten in a while, and and also to pay Hamas government employees who have right. been paid in a long time. So, you know, the fifty million, the fifteen million, right. then doesn't go that far. Billion, although being in cash and it is supervised, and and it is not. It's something Israel agreed to, and they have a system in place. And Qatar actually has been supportive and working with Israel on this money transfer. Uh, and the, their representative, uh, man I have met, Alamidi, um, was uh, stoned and attacked in Gaza. Uh, so the the uh, but the people in Sderot and everywhere else looks at this and says, fifteen million dollars cash to to a terrorist organization is a is a lifeline. All right. Um, all right. So based on everything you've now cleared up for us and analyzed for us this morning. Uh, would you agree that, and this is what the perception I think is, um, would you agree that that really the enemy planned for a 24 or you know 24 plus a few hours over the exact time frame was of bombarding Israel, and whether there was a formal uh, ceasefire or not, they likely would not have continued. This was a this was a test, and whether Israel would have responded with a ceasefire or not, it likely would have 
the the bombardment of Israel likely would have waned. Is that something that that, that it, it, say it again? It would have waned if one. If, if, if even without an official ceasefire, it's likely they would have let up. The enemy would have let up later in the week, um, because again, this was a test of the bombardment of Israel and how it holds up, and they fully intended to slow things down, even if there wasn't an official ceasefire. Is that is that a valid conclusion or not? It, it, it's possible because you know it, it becomes a limit how many they can continue to fire right. at at, uh, at one time. But I think that the um, that there's no guarantee. And as I said, when you have twenty thousand missiles, which is what the estimate and mortars that that they have, it doesn't cost them much to do it. They'll just keep firing and firing, and and then can re uh, replace them. But I think the um, that so so it could have continued, but not endlessly. Yeah, understood. Um, uh, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at com, on the Nachum Siegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holine is with us. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Now, I wish that – I mean, I, I'm not accusing – I'm not accusing you of not telling us everything, but sometimes <laughs> I, I wish you'd really – uh, share with us what you think happened behind the scenes. Um, the defense minister of Israel, I get it that he felt compelled to resign after BB did not call for the carpet bagging or, or carpet bombing, rather, excuse me, I've done that before, carpet bombing, uh, you know, et cetera, or some limited, you know, type of it in Gaza. I get that. But nonetheless, you have to agree that there's always a an important political element to this, right? If it was in his best interest to stay in the government, he likely would have tolerated Bibi's decision uh, because it's not in his best interest, he feels, to stay in the government. It's better for him to now leave and to dramatically you know, resign and to cause this earthquake that I keep reading about in Israeli politics. I'm not quite sure if it's an earthquake. You could tell us what you think. Um, uh, you know, so he felt that he had to leave at this point. So what could you tell us behind the scenes about Lieberman's decision? Well, first of all, it was cumulative. It's not uh, just this. And the tension between the Prime Minister and Lieberman has been well known and been going on for a long time. And um, so I think that you're right, anticipating elections, as everybody is right now, and uh, and thinking that an announcement will come soon. Many thought it would come immediately after Sukkot, uh, because, you know, you have to give three months' notice. They want I think March is their ideal month because it's after the winter, so more voters can come out, and the, the government anyway ends in the, in in 2019. So I mean, it would be elections at the end of the year. So this is would be just moving it up, uh, not unreasonable amount of time. So by Israeli standards, where the average government lasts two and a half years, they're doing well, and, and they lasted now over three. Uh, the um, you know Lieberman's decision. I'm sure he was angry, and I'm sure there was a fight, and he thought in, and can claim now in an election where his polling earlier was very low, maybe not even to make the threshold for inclusion in the Knesset, in the next Knesset. Uh, he now can be the, uh, the the person, the defense candidate who stood up, and especially when you have people like Benny Gantz, former chief of staff, and others now you know, circling uh, the political realm and talking about running his own party. And the latest polls show he would get 15 mandates, which is quite incredible for a novice and, and I don't think sustainable in reality, but it's an expression of you know, people's frustration with what is. You also see 
and as you said, I'll, if you analyze it deep, it's the multiple levels. You have Bennett now wanting to be the defense minister. Right. I don't think will happen, or it'll be just an accommodation for a short period till the election. But the uh, and Shaked came out uh, for him to be a, the minister. Others um, were very critical of it. But the, for Lieberman, his political future was very much in doubt. So this at least gives him uh, somewhat of a standing and a, and a base on which to, to be able to run, to challenge the prime minister. Uh, and I think people increasingly see him as vulnerable, but the victor, because he there's really no one, I think, on the scene still uh, who could beat him. What's funny, though, is that Bibi basically, and certainly you have to say it about the most recent election, he basically wins on the, on the safety and security issue. Uh, some might even say he unfairly utilized that whole angle the last time around, if you remember the days before and then Election Day itself. So it's funny, if, if Lieberman could in fact steal that uh, that um, uh, area of politics from Bibi and, and become the kingmaker in that area, maybe there can be a shakeup and somebody else you know, could sneak in and win. Look, it's not impossible because, you know, governments are coalition governments. Right. So it's not an absolute outcome. And, uh, you know, and, and you can be sure that, that Lieberman will campaign now that uh, that Israel's response was too weak, that Israel, you know, uh, I think someone told me that he he, would, he said they gave immunity to terrorist leaders. Um, the So the question, I mean, he will put himself in the spotlight also about what happened all of this time now that this could still be um, continued this way. The um, But it... it once you get into this political realm, all, all uh, normality to the degree that it exists there really goes out the window. And, and I think you're going to see, uh, you know, people exploit it. And when it comes to security, that, that has to be a unifying factor. I mean, they have to be together, just as we see in, in Gaza. They are coalescing. The different parties are coalescing um, to... to um, to deal with the current situation. They, right. they are not going to merge. They're not going to be able to get along in, in the longer term. So I think you'll see an ele- announcement of, an ele- of elections. We're going to see the tensions you saw between Bennett and the prime minister at their meeting. Well, I think they met today. As you just predicted, here it is, the Jerusalem Post. After Prime Minister Netanyahu and Education Minister Bennett concluded their meeting, it became clear that Israel will hold early elections. A date for the elections will be decided on Sunday. And listen to this excuse. Finance Minister Cajon's objection to Bennett's demand of being appointed defense minister after Lieberman resigned this week led the officials to the decision. <laughs> that, that's a weak excuse to go to new elections, <laughs> if you ask me. But as you just predicted, Malcolm, literally happened as we're speaking. Sunday, we'll know the date. Uh, what is it now? It's November. So, yeah, I guess February or March, right? We'll know the date. Uh, mo- mo- February is still too cold, and, right. and um, they have to try and get out there. Everybody analyzes when their voters will most likely come out. So I think that that's, uh, that March is a more likely period. Wow. The campaign begins. I guess the Israelis would be, our brothers and sisters in Israel would say, let the fun begin. This is going to be quite... <laughs> it's not going to be fun. I think it's it's regrettable. Um, look, the, as I said, the election, it's only advancing in a little time, but you know, you always end up with the same thing anyway. You need a coalition. You need right. uh, then they start negotiating, and for all that time, essentially everything freezes. You know, the Knesset is frozen. It's actually the time when Israel's governments are the strongest, 
is in the uh, election period because the ca- the there's campaign no period, restriction right. on the government they they can act right During and the, the uh, but for the country you know maybe without having uh, all of this government they'll do better but the um, and you, you could know, and it's you a could. period of uh, it's expensive and it's and it's a period of indecision and you could make an argument you could make an argument that all four people mentioned just now in this announcement uh, Netanyahu Bennett Kahlon and Lieberman you, you can make an argument that that every one of them has right now like you could see that each each of these uh, a person um, has you know so, some area or influence that they could really play a big part in this election nobody's irrelevant and, and remember small parties have outside influence because when it comes to the negotiations because the multi one votes right now he has a 61 vote coalition which means leverage over him and that the um um the, the, so for after the election obviously uh negotiate and try to get whatever they can because if it's a very narrow margin the latest poll show showed we could doing very well between in the, in the between the 30 and 40 seats which is very large for for israeli parties and gives them very strong strength if you only need to bring in you know a couple parties to religious parties others to get over 61 um but it's if it, it, these numbers will change they will fluctuate and a lot depends also still on the legal proceedings that right. um, I forgot about that oh my god that are going on and, right. and what if you have a decision there during this time right as well. oh my gosh this could be a real roller coaster exactly wow unbelievable be very interesting to see what happens with the religious parties obviously we always are curious about that and in general this could be a very very interesting election i guess you could say they all are. So the news is that the Bennett Netanyahu meeting ends in a decision for new elections on Sunday. It will be announced um, exactly when that election will take place in Israel. So Ambassador Haley says the United States will no longer abstain when the U.N. engages in its useless annual vote on the Golan. If this resolution, she says, in in regarding the U.N. resolution on the Golan Heights uh, ever made sense, it surely does not today. The resolution is plainly biased against Israel. Further, the atrocities the Syrian regime continues to commit prove its lack of fitness to govern anyone. So the U.S. and and do you, do you have an estimate at least how long it's been like this? How many years they've uh, continued to abstain when it comes to the Syrian resolution, to the Golan resolution? Uh, I guess since it was first introduced. Oh, like, really? A long time. Yeah. So there was, from the beginning, it's been an abstention. And what do you think of the uh, the Haley announcement and decision by the U.S. to vote differently now to vote? Well, I think it's very important, and, and it's again a further, uh, uh, you know, declaration about the administration saying the hypocrisy of the United Nations. All of these ridiculous resolutions. I mean, just just the thought that you know the resolution essentially says that Israel should return the Golan to to the to Syria. to Syria. Now, just think what that means today right. of returning the Golan to Syria, which means giving it to Iran, which means giving it to Hezbollah and and all of their attendant radical and extremist forces, and uh, and the idea of any diminution of Israel's uh, position there or or um, giving hope to the enemy that they can create circumstances uh, is is a, a bad move strategically in, in interest of no one. I mean, just think what Jordan would think. What what will the Druze think on others if, if God forbid, Israel 
were, were to withdraw from the Golan and what it would mean for the North. If you see what, what 20,000 rockets, think of 150,000 rockets in the hands of those of Hezbollah and their cuckoos in the, uh, in the North, what that would mean for, uh, for, for Israel. So the decision, it's a moral declaration. It's not going to change the vote in the United Nations. But we should also look at those who, who vote for it and, and, and judge their sanity if there are Western countries about what, how, how much they don't understand the situation in, in the North and how dangerous this proposal is. Could you, uh, could you end the suspense for us and just tell us which European countries are certainly going to be on that side of the issue? Are there any obvious ones? Well, the EU sometimes votes as a block on these things, and sometimes they, they will abstain. I would assume that Canada will vote with us. I think that Australia may, and um, hopefully Israel. But I, I think after that, it's all, it's all speculation, whether Palau and the Marshall Islands and some of the others who often vote with us. And the real key is to look at how many abstain. Right. Someone here wants to know if uh, you think Vladimir Putin will have any influence on the Israeli election. You know, he's had accusations about being influential on elections in the past, Malcolm. You know that. Right. Well, <laughs> it, it depends what, what way he's going to go. Obviously, he has close relations with Netanyahu and uh, with Lieberman. and with will, they other... be, will they be infiltrating Israeli social media? I mean, I think they try it everywhere, but I, I don't know that they have a favorite party that, uh, that will determine the outcome of what of what, um, what what role. I don't know who they're against and who they're for, so it's hard to say. And in a drop more serious question, I wonder if the President of the United States is going to exhibit some type of preference in the upcoming Israeli election. That'd be interesting to watch. Yes, it will be. Yeah. And whether it'll be regarded as meddling or not. Or maybe he'll just... The truth is he could stay completely silent on this. I mean, there's no reason... If he doesn't want to, there's no reason for him to actually get involved, but... Right, you agree. Well, he doesn't usually stay silent on things, right. but, <laughs> but a, I think that uh, that's a very good point. I don't think he, you know he will openly have a horse in the race. He'll, he obviously has this close relationship existing um, um, relationship with uh, the prime minister, and uh, they've met very often. Considering, I think probably the foreign leader most often to meet with the president. Uh, so the you know, I, I, but I I think everybody will counsel against too blatant involvement. Uh, the race, speaking of elections, the race for Jerusalem mayor has been concluded. Any comment regarding the uh, mayor, Mayor Leon of Jerusalem? Well, I spoke to Mayor Leon yesterday. Uh, I've known him for many years. Uh, I think he'll continue the, in the direction of trying to build Jerusalem and enhance the not only the security, but the economic development, and uh, hopefully some of the projects we have, like finally securing higher safety, will get a boost. Um, and even though it's more the federal government that, that is uh, required to do that. And you, you remember, like, police and things like that are not in the control of the mayors. These are federal. It's all national police. Right. So the... The um, so on the security front, he has more limited role, but obviously the the mayor of Jerusalem is an international personality, and I hope Mr. Leon will will be able to fulfill that well. His English is good enough to be an international personality. Uh, yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know. Uh, two other things I wanted to mention regarding what happened down south, and as we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters and their children. In the South, first of all, I hope I hope the normal day, school day, etc., has gotten back to, to where it should be because that was actually a decision 
parents and school boards had to make in the South. They should even open the schools. Right. And, and you can imagine when you know when a kid is taken out of their regular schedule and ends up being bored at home, and ha- and parents who need to go to work have to take care of their kids. You know how it's a domino effect, and obviously a very difficult situation. But two things you alluded to this earlier, but I just wanted to um, uh, to remind everybody, especially those who are always fighting this battle on the college campuses, at group discussions, and etc. People have to understand the lengths to which Israel went to as a civilians. And it's not, it's not only what you just said before about uh, places, but one of the decisions the prime minister frankly makes when the, if ground forces uh, should go in, et cetera, is, you know, the types of Gaza uh, casualties of civilians, you know, will occur. So, you know, you talked earlier today about the um, international pressure that, God forbid, would be great. People have to uh, understand that from the other standpoint, meaning that does remain as, as, um, uh, as careful as possible. Well, just another piece that people need to know as they continue to fight you know, out there for Israel as they continue to uh, argue on its behalf. And you know what is interesting? You're absolutely right, but it's interesting to me that so often now in my conversations, even during the last week um, with various Israelis, both officials and and others, is that they would ask me about the the problem of anti-Semitism in the United States and how worried we are about what is going on and what... uh, um, the concern is, especially after the FBI report came out uh, this week, that uh, of a 37% increase in anti-Semitic attacks in 2017, uh, the, the huge increase, and of course Jews are the most targeted of all groups, even though people talk about Islamophobia and other forms of racism or bigotry, whatever, uh, um, against whatever group, but half of the attacks, I think, are against Jews in America, and those are the ones that are reported. So again, it's a reminder to people that if you suffer harassment or any kind of anti-Semitic incident, to report it. You cannot let it just go. We see the outcome when uh, people uh, people just dismiss them as crazy people or as, as um, extremists. They have to be acted upon. I was in Toronto to speak this week, and I, I learned that a group of uh, kids going to yeshiva to school were set upon uh, and beaten up there. The, the number of incidents across the country continues a pace with with daily reports on campuses, especially, but off campus in communities, um, and while police and and others, FBI are giving it more of a priority. Uh, the fact is that the infrastructure exists here, and that we don't know to agree to which, or we do know some outside forces may play a role in it. But just because we're getting distant from Pittsburgh, I see already the diminution in concern and the immediate. Responses. Uh, a lot of uh, schools and synagogues instituted new measures. Everyone should, meaning locking doors and having everybody come in through one door so that you can uh, control the flow and people can notice if somebody uh, strange is, is circling the synagogue or it appears to be out of place, uh, of keeping a cell phone in the synagogue of, uh, or, or school, any place that you can get immediate response. We cannot lay back on it. And, you know, we warned about it because we know from past experience that a few days later you, you see right away things reverting to, uh, to the status quo ante and, and security becomes a um, secondary concern. It's got to remain a primary concern all the time. There are some irreversible permanent, permanent measures that can be implemented to, to fight this uh, lackadaisical attitude that sometimes sets in afterwards, whether it be 
combination locks that uh, that people need to press in order to get into the building, whether it be uh, stanchions or you know, um, um, I forgot what they're called. You know, the, to block cars and trucks from uh, yeah, the ballards. Thank you. And and, that's right. And and, like and the other thing, which is you know, I'm promoting for many years with very limited success, is getting parents to agree to right. do guard duty one day a year when they register their kids. Doesn't cost anything to anybody to the schools. Right. Is uh, I'm sure that there isn't a family that can't. Uh, arrange for a husband or wife to be there because they will know who belongs and doesn't belong. And the presence of people outside, visible presence, is a deterrent. And uh, I really hope that, uh, I mean, a couple schools are doing it now, and, and that can supplement having an, a uniformed guard. But they, a uniformed guard doesn't know the people, doesn't know the community right. as well as any parent. The, par- the parents profile better than others. Uh, finally, let me end with this. Um... Uh, what do you have to say when a newly elected congresswoman from Minnesota who had said that during her campaign that BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, that movement is counteractive and prevents dialogue, uh, what do you say that now she's been elected and reveals uh, that, uh, in fact, she is a supporter of the Israel boycott movement? A, it's no surprise that uh, Ilan Omar, we knew uh, the positions that she's had, held. It's not surprising. Um, she, she said in 20 times the world done evil doings. Uh, I spoke about this many times during the, the, in the last uh, few months, warning about not only her but others. Uh, we have uh, another candidate who said a goal is to cut aid to Israel, the, you know, Palestinian flags on their elections. Um, and, and while that we represent a very small minority in the Congress, by and large, Congress will be strong. But, but this is insidious, and it's going to continue to grow. We have to make sure candidates, pro-Israel, pro-Jewish, Jewish candidates as well, to get involved in the political process. They should be running a state, city, committee, people, everything to be able to, in the future, we will have um, uh, representatives there who, who will be able to pursue meaningful policies for the United States and for, for our allies. Right. We're seeing a growing trend everywhere in the world, and even here, the center that I talked about for a year, year and a half, two years. I mean, we're seeing it really enacted, and in this election, more than ever before, that that people can get elected who are, in some cases, just totally ignorant, but in other cases, really bigoted and biased in their in their views. And uh, finally, finally, contradicting the initial reports, Israeli media now says that Prime Minister Netanyahu has put out a statement claiming the rumor about new elections is false, saying that he will take on the role of defense minister. Of course he did. There you go. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I think this is his 13th ministry, <laughs> uh, but he really holds many portfolios, as you know, because he was holding mm-hmm. them out for labor coming in and others coming in. It, it is not in his interest to have the election uh, sooner than he wanted, um, and especially with the overhang of these of these investigations. Right. You Me- know, that if you have four months, a lot can happen in Me- those four months. Yeah, meanwhile, the media is sticking with the story that Sunday we will have a date for the election, so we'll see what happens. So he may, he may be showing this to say that, you know, I'm not the one pushing for this, right. and if we have to do it, it's reluctant. But I, I just don't see that, that people, the uncertainty, that was Cajlon's argument, the Minister of uh, Economy, um, that the indecision and this, you know, the, uh, 
being held over the people all the time. And uh, once at least you make a decision, they know there's a target date. Things will, you know, will go on. The circus will go on for that period. But this way, just delaying it, delaying it, I think adds to the tensions. Yeah, no question about it. All right, thank you so much. Uh, Next week, Thanksgiving weekend, we are together, right? God willing. Great. Okay, we look forward to it. Have a wonderful Shabbos. There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Lots of folks take off Thanksgiving weekend, including Friday of Thanksgiving weekend. I'm proud to say that Malcolm and I are two of the people who will not be taking off. A week from today, we'll have a weekly update for you right here. Please, God, at JM in the AM.